In listening to this podcast, I guess you're already familiar with NYU social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, with his thinking about the modern university and his deep cultural diagnosis about our current moment. That's what really opened my mind to the point where I could see that all of us are limited in what we can see and that we need to listen to others. We need to seek out our critics. We need to take others' views seriously. And an institution that does that well creates wise people. That's what a university should be. And a university that has very little viewpoint diversity, that is openly hostile to religion and conservatism, and that reinforces a kind of a progressive call-out culture, is an institution that cannot find the truth and cannot make people wiser. John is a giant, and we're deeply grateful to Pete Weiner, an APPC senior fellow and colleague who writes regularly for the New York Times and The Atlantic, for inviting and bringing him on to today's show. Over the years, John's scholarship, first from UVA and now NYU's Stern School of Business, has been prolific. And one thing to perhaps appreciate even more so about John has been his amazing penchant for popularizing those insights. I didn't ask him about that directly, but it seems upon reflection that he combines buoyant personality and an optimistic and kind spirit, and then just a commitment to working really hard. When John believes in a cause, whether in uncoddling contemporary parenting or better journalism or connecting faculty from multiple perspectives, well, look out and you can see some of those organizations that he's championing in the footnotes. In addition to appearances on podcasts and on late night television, John gave a magnificent talk last November, Why the 21st Century Enlightenment Needs Walls at the Royal Society for the Arts. He's also given four TED Talks, which since 2008 have been viewed more than 7 million times. So our main message is, if you like what you hear today, seek out his voice. He's taught my own young family so much about the value of reading the classics, not just learning from our iPhones. His teaching in The Righteous Mind about how our brains work is profound. It turns out we're in fact governed more by gut level intuition than by objective rationality. And as he says in today's dialogue with another powerhouse intellectual, we face profound challenges in squaring up to some of the winds that are presently blowing on elite campuses. And yet there's always hope. So enjoy this big think conversation, reaching back to Edmund Burke's warning to the French revolutionaries and asking if some of today's deepest challenges may carry their own antibodies as Pete wonders aloud. John blends realistic, tough-minded diagnosis with the optimism of Steven Pinker and Matt Ridley. He says religion can and will play an important role too, even if that means blending dynamism and unchanging commitment. Thanks for listening and enjoy. John, thanks so much for joining us this morning and for joining the Faith Angle Conversation. My colleague, Pete Weiner, who I know you know personally, is going to kick off today's conversation. Hey, John, hey. thanks for being with us. Uh, it's great to talk to you again. I actually wanted to begin it with an anecdote, which you may recall it was a few years ago when you and I had breakfast at the Jefferson Hotel. I remember that. Yeah, and I asked you what constructive contribution Christians could make to public life. And I knew you were a what I would refer to as a low-wattage atheist, but someone who found much to admire in religion. And you gave me a simple answer. You said humility. 
And I've thought about that a lot of times. Oh my God, Cypression. You sure were. And I've even actually written about this, citing you, at least you in general, not by name, in columns. But I wanted to begin by asking what specific contribution you thought that Christians had to make to understanding humility. That's one. And the other one is, why is humility such a particularly important virtue at this time? So I'm really interested in evolution, both genetic evolution and cultural evolution. And cultures change over time, and the rate of change has been accelerating in the last few hundred years. But my goodness, has it accelerated in the last decade or two because of social media. And one of the biggest changes is that social media has forced us all to manage our reputations a lot more than we had to 10 or 20 years ago. There's a lot more public displays. In some domains, maybe it's of your accomplishments and how wonderful your life is. But I think the areas that most concern you and me are the moralistic areas, the ways where people have to show how angry they are about something. And this is a kind of showing off. It's a kind of a moral showing off and preening and grandstanding. And I'm very alarmed that this really could bring about the downfall of much that we know and love. I think it's a group of settings of the social order that we've never experienced before. And so I think the lessons, again, I've only read bits of the New Testament, but from my exposure to Christian students at UVA, there was a kind of a gentleness, a humility, a reluctance to sort of jump in and condemn that I often see in other students. So I think that's what I was getting at. And just to dilate a little bit on this notion that you feel like this could bring us down, what is it about those trends that are happening and this moral preening and maybe even social media more generally? A lot of people have an inchoate sense that that is happening that we've entered into some kind of new period, and they're very, very worried about it, but I'm not sure they know exactly why they are. No, that's right. There is a very pervasive sense of unease, a sense that things are going haywire, and each major public misunderstanding, the Kavanaugh hearing was one, the Covington Catholic affair was another, and these things happen frequently, gives us all the feel that something's out of control, we don't know what's happening to us. Now, Whenever I get pessimistic, as I'm sure I will in the next half hour with you, I always have to remember the chiding of my friend Steve Pinker and also Matt Ridley. Both of these are professors who wrote books, The Better Angels of Our Nature from Pinker and The Rational Optimist from Ridley. My libertarian friends point out that uh, people often feel that the world's going to hell, but yet decade after decade or century after century, things get better and better. So our feeling of unease may be misplaced and the broad trends for humanity are very positive. But with that said, we are in a time of a gigantic social experiment. The way I think about it is that we evolved for life in small-scale tribal societies with intense gossip and intense animistic religion, the way pre-civilization societies generally are. And we've evolved to live in very large societies. Large societies structured on feudalism seem to be very stable. Those occur all over the world. But these large secular liberal democracies are something fairly new, something, if you have a large diverse group that's not bound together by a shared religion, by a shared sense of the sacred, there's a high risk that it will split apart. So a lot of people have been worried about that for several decades. And then you try this new experiment, which is around 2006, somebody says, hey, what would happen if we just connected everybody to everybody? It'll be great, won't it? And that's when Facebook opened up to the world perhaps with the best of intentions, I don't really know, but I think they were techno-optimists who assumed that just more connectivity will be great. And I think in the last two or three years, we're all coming face to face with the fact that we don't know what to say about it on net. My goodness, are there a lot of downsides to connecting everybody to everybody. So that's why I'm worried. 
It is right. The theory was that this would actually bind us together. The large yeah, secular, it doesn't seem to be doing it, that. You know, it's easy to bind us together in service of fighting another group. So social media is very good at that. John, your book, The Righteous Mind, surprised a number of people, I think, in the kind of cultural conservative part of the country community. I remember evangelical Christians talking about it. Russell Moore saying it was one of the most important books for us to read. I know you've done some conversations with the CCCU and Colin Hansen at Gospel Coalition. What do you think resonated there in that first book? I'm interested in talking a little bit about your earlier argument and how it kind of connects to this most recent book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Pete mentioned all this progress that we've seen, and I'm curious as to whether you see faith and religion checking hubris and making a contribution in that direction, uh, as you said earlier, UVA students, or sometimes making us more sure of ourselves and more arrogant. I wonder if you might talk a little bit about that. No, happy to. Those, those, yeah, no, those of course, it can have both effects. And some listeners, especially secular listeners, would say, what? Religion makes people less judgmental and humble? What are you smoking? Because obviously there's fundamentalism of all sorts. There's religious fundamentalism, there's non-religious fundamentalism. So, but I think the crucial point in my unlikely journey to where I am now, this odd position in a time of a culture war, is really about my first book, The Happiness Hypothesis. So when I was teaching Psych 101 at the University of Virginia, I tried to explain psychological principles to a class of 319-year-olds, and I would quote from Buddha and Jesus and Shakespeare. And I decided that if I don't get tenure at UVA, I don't want to transfer down to a lower-ranked university. UVA was wonderful. I wanted to stay. And I thought, if I don't get tenure, I'll just write a book about all these ancient ideas. And hey, you know, maybe it'd be fun to try to write a book that sells well. And I did get tenure, it turned out, although just barely, I happened to know my vote. And I decided to write the book anyway, and it was called The Happiness Hypothesis. I didn't make up the title, the publishers did. But what I did was I just reviewed all the psychological claims I could find in the wisdom literatures, East and West, and then said, what does the psychology say about them? And in the process, I developed an enormous respect for ancient wisdom for the following reason. The ancients were not smarter than us, if we want to know about chemistry and physics, we should not waste any time reading them because they have nothing worthwhile to tell us. But they wrote a lot about getting along with other people, managing your mind, managing your emotions. And I'll bet that a lot of what they wrote was terrible, but we don't know about that because it didn't survive. What comes down to us went through a triple filtration process. So what we get is the very, very best of what was thought East and West. And it really stands the test of time well. I mean, all 10 chapters of the happiness hypothesis are basically they were right, but here we can put on a few modifications now based on what we know from psychology research. And also then, during that time, soon after the book came out, I got much more interested in politics and left-right politics. And I started reading some conservative writings. Now, I was very much on the left then. I started writing The Righteous Mind in order to help the Democrats. And there's a wonderful line from Edmund Burke, it's the famous line about how we generally do not put a man to trade upon his own private stock of reason. What he's saying is we British don't do that. Now, the French, oh, they're insane. The French, they'll tear down everything at the drop of a hat. But we British, we understand that tradition has a stabilizing function. And as a person on the left who was also a social scientist, this was like a revelation. This was like a lightning bolt because I saw instantly that he was right. And this is another reason I'm concerned about what's going on today, because at least when Pete and I were growing up, school involved a lot of stuff that was written more than 20 years ago. In fact, we were exposed to stuff written more than 100 years ago. But I think that if you're in high school or college today, most of what comes across your eyeballs was written in the last few weeks. You're just not exposed to much stuff that is more than a few years old. And that means that cultures can evolve or communities of meaning 
can evolve very rapidly with new ideas that sound appealing but are absurd or destructive. So I think we have a new generation that is at risk of wisdom deprivation disorder. And Christianity, like Buddhism and Stoicism and Judaism, my own religion, are enormous repositories of triple filtered wisdom. That raises a question, which is, because I agree with you, I think that makes a lot of sense. How do you rekindle that interest in younger people that the ancients had something to teach them? Yeah, it's very hard to rekindle an interest. Ancient texts generally are not nearly as engaging as a set of memes that you can find and laugh at. So I don't know how you rekindle it, but I do think that we need to be looking very carefully at the entire educational process from kindergarten all the way through university. And we have to be very careful about fashionable nonsense, especially if it's politically pleasing. This is why I'm so concerned about the decline of viewpoint diversity or political diversity in the academy, in education schools, in many high schools. So I think we need to expose people to competing ideas and teach them habits of mind that help them to question. We evolved as a tribal species. We're really good at doing orthodoxy and us versus them. And it takes a lot of practice and a lot of external help and support to have a more modest idea that we're all imperfect. We're all subject to overconfidence. We all need to seek out and engage with people who differ from us, people who criticize us. We should welcome that. And so I think we need to build a lot more viewpoint diversity and debate and constructive disagreement into the educational process. I want to move to the intellectual climate in the universities in one sec, but let me throw out a hypothesis that I have and tell me what you think about it. And I hear this a lot when I speak. I'm sure that you do now, which is a real anxiety that is out there about the political and social climate, uh, the acrimony, the anger, and the sense that the wheels are coming off, that there's no common ground anymore. Really, the political tribalism that you talked about. And I found myself telling people that I have a view or a hope, uh, not necessarily an expectation, but a hope, which is that sometimes viruses create their own antibodies. And sometimes there are virtues in the life of an individual or the life of a nation that you take for granted and don't understand why you cared about them until they're stripped away. Yeah. And then you begin to see what life is like when they're gone. I wonder if you agree with that and whether you think that is a kind of a foothold. Because it seems to me that the argument for recovery, maybe rekindling, relies in part on the idea of human flourishing and lives of dignity and fulfillment and, and happiness. And to begin to teach people or remind people what that really means and what it doesn't mean. So maybe you can yeah. reflect on that. Sure, I know I certainly can. That is one of the lessons that I get from Steve Pinker and Matt Ridley is that humans are amazingly inventive. And when things get really bad, the worse they get, the more people try to work on them. And so in general, there are problems that get worse and worse, more and more people are coming in. So while I'm pessimistic in my heart, with my head, I would bet that things will be better 50 years from now than they are today. And for exactly the reason that you just said, that is quite possible it's going to happen. So I can see at least two reasons why things might turn around in the next five years. One is that the mental health stats for teenagers are so bad in America, and it's the same in Canada and Britain. I haven't yet looked in Europe. It may be a little different. I need to look in East Asia, too. But at least in America, Canada, and Britain, we all began massively overprotecting our kids in the 1990s. We stopped letting them out out of fear that they would be killed or abducted or molested. 
So in all three countries, we just rather suddenly began depriving kids of the most essential experiences they needed, which were experiences of independence, to be outside, having conflicts with their friends, cooperating with their friends, exploring and getting lost and finding their way home. So we've deprived a whole generation, beginning with kids born in 1995 especially, of essential experiences and also the arrival of social media when they were in middle school for a lot of reasons. We don't know why exactly, but there are a lot of possible causal contributors to a huge rise in depression and anxiety, especially for girls born after 1995. Two or three years ago, this was not widely known. Now it is just becoming very widely known this year. So I think that this is going to force a reckoning across the country that we are doing something terribly wrong. This is not a matter of like, oh, people on one side don't like the values of kids today. No, this is huge rise in suicides for 10 to 14 year olds. They don't kill themselves much, but their rate is up 150% for preteen girls. So that I think is going to force a reckoning. And there, I think there'll be a big response. We can't go on like this. The other reason why I'm hopeful is that at least the left is completely stymied over the matter of race. All of the things we're talking about, yeah. immigration, equality, employment, all sorts of issues have at least some linkage to race. And people on the left can never be seen to be taking a view that seems insensitive to racism. So while this is an admirable trait, of course it's admirable to be against racism, but if you turn it into a religion that admits no nuance, you're stuck with a bunch of positions that prevent you from figuring out complicated social policy questions. So I think the left is stuck, social science is stuck. There are all these issues that we could make progress on about diversity and inclusion, but we don't make any progress on them because we can't think straight. But here's the reason for optimism. Believe it or not, people are diverse. And one thing we're discovering is that all black people don't think alike and all Native Americans don't think alike and all Muslims don't think alike. And there are a lot of people in every identity group that in the last year or two, they were, were uncomfortable with the current really toxic form of identity politics. In the book, Greg and I call it common enemy identity politics, the demonizing of straight white males in particular, binary dimensions and high is bad, low is good. That sort of intersectionalist binary thinking really turns off a lot of people in every identity group. And once Trump was elected and we saw the rise of really nasty right-wing white identity politics, now a lot of people were emboldened to say, okay, wait, this is madness. Because obviously each side emboldens the other. The extremists on the right come out in response to the extremists on the left. So I have a long list. There's like 10 or 15 wonderful books that came out in the last year or two by people who are not white males. Amy Chua's book, Political Tribes, Francis Fukuyama on identity. There's a great book coming out, Irshad Manji, Don't Label Me. I mean, I have a whole list. There's all these great authors. And it's happening in Britain exactly the same way. So once we hear a diverse set of voices reviving the approach of Martin Luther King and many of the early civil rights leaders, which was common humanity yeah. identity politics, that's going to break the logjam. So I think we're stuck now, but that's one way that we could move ahead. That's very helpful. Yeah, and reflecting a little more on that piece in which sometimes there's a religious motive, there's a religious anchor that governs the engagement by various groups in society to help oftentimes come across the line and be a part of a solution, that strange bedfellows trend. Do you see strange bedfellows happening in your work with Heterodox Academy or otherwise that's part of a contribution where this 10 to 15 year experiment with technology may not continue forevermore in its current direction? I don't know. I don't see signs of it yet in the way that you're saying. I don't see signs of it in my world just yet. The incredible hostility towards Christianity 
that I see in the academy. A lot of it is based on the issue of gay marriage and gay rights. So I think there's all kinds of stats that the Democrats, you know, Democrats went to church as often as Republicans did in the 1960s and 70s. But since then, the, since the Reagan coalition came along, the parties have completely split and church attendance is a good predictor of politics. As the left has began to sacralize gay rights and gay marriage in the early part of this century as the major topic. And here, you know, what little I know about the history of it suggests that some of the strategies used by George W. Bush and Karl Rove in 2004 played into the polarization and used it in ways that I wasn't pleased about. But there was a big culture war over gay marriage and gay rights from the 90s on. And as a result, I think the left has seen Christianity as basically homophobic. And as I've spoken at a variety of Christian schools, what I see is a sincere effort to practice Christian principles. And I see not hatred, but love, but at the same time, very clear doctrine and clear lines in the Bible that make it very difficult for Christian schools to have the same policies as secular schools. What I'm getting at is this. If you know what a group holds sacred, you know where their passions are and you know where they have trouble thinking straight. And I think to some extent that has happened to the left around these issues. And for that reason, I don't see any ability of the academy to compromise with Christianity. Now, I was hoping that once gay marriage became the law of the land, that this would remove some of the passion. And, you know, look, you and I and many social scientists recognize that marriage is incredibly important for the success of children. I mean, the social science on this is so strong. And I was hopeful that this would allow social scientists to begin saying, okay, yes, marriage matters. Because progressive social scientists have been reluctant to say that because that seems to now exclude gay people and other groups that don't marry so much. Anyway, all I'm saying is I'm not seeing it yet. I am still seeing a lot of hostility towards Christianity in particular. Buddhism is great. Islam is great. So academics are perfectly happy saying good things about those two religions, but not Judaism and especially not Christianity. I will say just from my perspective, I think the way that a lot of Christians have engaged in politics really over the decades, but particularly over recent years, has really done a disservice to the faith, really for the reasons I've been struck by this, how often I come back to things you have written or told me. Part of it is this notion of political tribalism and how often I see within people of my own faith, co-religionists, and I battle this myself as well, which is to subordinate faith to predilections, pre-existing political, ideological ones. And speaking as a person of faith, of course, the idea would be that you would approach these things and conform your politics and your ideology to ways that reflect the best of your faith. But in fact, that turns out to be a lot, lot harder than we think. And I don't think it's conscious either. I think it's much more subconscious than we really ever realize. So it's a fascinating movement. Right. I think that's right. I mean, I believe that I titled my book, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, because the psychology is similar. Psychology that allows us to bind ourselves together with others around sacred values in order to compete with other groups. And this is what underlies sports as well. If you look at the way fans approach a football game, I think it's a lot the same psychology. And I must say, I am disappointed that so many, well, maybe we shouldn't get into this, but you know, I believe that Donald Trump is not a conservative. He's many things, but I think he is certainly not a Burkean conservative. And I have been disappointed the way that many conservatives that I like and respect have gone along with him in ways that I think violate the values that I thought they held. So we are in a very confusing time. My point is to agree with you that many people will subordinate faith to politics because ultimately it's all about us versus them.
Just tell me one thing again in terms of maybe a way to think about how to get out of this, this confirmation bias and motivated reasoning. I step back and say one of the fascinating things to me is on political tribalism and confirmation bias, which I understand as part of the human condition, they seem so much more acute now than in the past. And I do assume that social media has some part to play in that, though maybe not entirely. I just don't remember having been involved in politics now for three decades, this degree of political tribalism and confirmation bias, as I see now. But one of the things that I've been trying to navigate through is... How do you work through that? How do you have conversations with people, both in personal relationships, but more broadly? What does the country have to do in terms of changing its ways, in terms of changing its attitude to get us out of this cul-de-sac? So I think that one of the things that's happened to us in the last five or 10 years is that life has always had different domains. So there's how do you talk in church, or if you're a lawyer, or if you're a doctor, or in a doctor's office? in a classroom. So each domain of life has had its own set of norms and values. I teach a course on professional responsibility here at the Stern School at NYU. The norms for business are different from those for medicine or law or other professions. But what social media has done is knocked down all the walls and allowed the norms of the public square to flood into everything. Those norms are about victory. It's appropriate to make ad hominem attacks. You're not really very accountable for the truth of what you say. Whereas in my world, in the academy, you are incredibly accountable. You know, if an academic says, oh, that's always the case, and someone says, no, wait, wait, do you mean almost always or do you mean always? Because always is 100%, not 99.9. But as the norms of conflict and politics flood into everything, it ruins everything. That's, again, a reason I'm alarmed. I have a talk, if you listeners search for RSA, uh, the Royal Society for the Arts. I gave a talk at the RSA, oh, I should have forget the title of it, but Height RSA, um, in which I used the metaphor that the Titanic was supposed to be unsinkable because it had, I think, 16 or so compartments down below. So if one got flooded, wouldn't matter. And unfortunately, once five got flooded, you can see the water tipping over from compartment to compartment. That's what I see happening in our society. Everything is becoming politics. And at that point, we're going to sink. So the way to approach it, I think, is we have to not talk about what does America have to do or how do we fix ourselves. We have to look group by group, institution by institution, classroom by classroom, church by church, family by family, And within each place, we need a lot more privacy, a lot less public display. And so my colleagues and I created a program called Open Mind. If listeners go to openmindplatform.org, we created originally so that students in a classroom could be exposed to the best ideas on left and right and also learn skills of talking across the political divide. That was the original idea, but it quickly became clear that there are so many divides in our society. And our skills of talking in a constructive way are atrophying as everything becomes politics and shouting and shaming. So we don't have much politics in the base version. It really is just, why can't we understand each other? What's the basic psychology of motivated reasoning and moral matrices and all these ideas that I developed in The Righteous Mind? So Jewish congregations are split. I mean, anytime my rabbi mentions Israel, she knows she's going to get it from one side or the other of the congregation. Christian communities, obviously, some denominations are literally schisming over gay marriage and other issues. So we think that we're going to be developing a version eventually specifically for Christian communities, one for Jews, one for cross-religion conversations. So I think that the way you restore trust is within a closed group that has moral resources. It's not learning to shout better in the public square. And I wonder if you might reflect on the campuses in particular just a little bit. I know you do that some in the new book. John, you know, there are 4,300 campuses in the country, and 
I think it's 1,700 of which are four-year schools. Many of these are liberal arts. I think something like 800 of those have some kind of soft religious affiliation. Maybe 200, 150 or so are part of this unique CCCU group that you spoke to recently. But you mentioned recently that the sort of leading 100, 150 elite schools like Yale, where you went, you tell the story of the Christakis, who are sort of chucked out one of them anyway and became them, may have a little bit of a different dynamic than some of the other campuses. We're also talking with Warren Cass about his work to get people who didn't go to college engaged in the labor market. And that's another, you know, north of half of the country, certainly. So as you think about the distinct role of campuses and this woke campus movement for students, how do you see them fitting in more broadly? Yes. So as I've been traveling around the country talking about the book, I've learned two things. One is that the mental health crisis is everywhere. Whatever the school is, the students who were born in 1996 and afterwards are much more fragile so I'll give a talk and then some guy will come up to me afterwards. He says, you know, I'm a guitar teacher in town and I just started noticing this. In the last few years, you know, if I criticize a kid's playing, like he won't come back next week. So the mental health crisis is everywhere. And that is leading a lot of institutions to adapt in ways that are probably not even healthy. The more we accommodate, of course, there are times you need to accommodate, but we've been overprotecting kids since they were young and now we're doing it in college as well. That's everywhere. The politicization of this new fragility, the idea of safe spaces, trigger warnings, microaggression training, that we have to ban speakers who might be upsetting to members of the seven major identity groups, that is not everywhere. That is not at most schools. That is at most schools in New England and top schools in the Northeast, most along the West Coast. So I would not send my own kids to any school in New England, for example. I know of a few college presidents who are really trying. There are some very good people But the social forces in New England in particular are very moralistic. There's interesting research showing that it's much more left skewed in New England than any other part of the country. I would not send my kid to any progressive liberal arts school, Swarthmore, Haverford, any of those, because those are small pressure cookers and they tend to have a dominant political orthodoxy. On the other hand, most of the big state schools are okay. I mean, there's orthodoxy in certain departments, but these are vast schools with Each one, I mean, culture in the business school is different from the liberal arts, is different from the engineering school. So I don't want to make it sound as though there's this crisis that is engulfing most of our universities. It is not. But if you look at the top 20 or 50 or 100, yeah, I hear from students every day. I get emails from students all over the country saying, thank you for what you're saying. This is my experience. Of course, if they're conservative or Christian, I hear it a lot. But even if they're centrist or libertarian, they say, I'm afraid to speak up in class. If I challenge somebody, I know that they're going to shame me. And so, and we have data on this too at Heterodox Academy. If anyone in the audience has kids who are going to college soon, I would urge them to, there's a lot of questions you can ask. We have an article coming out in Reason next week, I think it is. And we have a guide to colleges, which we're updating at Heterodox Academy. But there are still good places to go, but you really have to ask a lot of questions. And this is especially true if you're on the left or if your kid is on the left. The last thing you want is to take a kid who's on the left and put them in a place that's going to intensify that, deny them exposure to disconfirmation. If you do that with your kid, your kid will be less wise in four years than she was when she started college. What's the explanation for this illiberal impulse? So if you talk to people who were vanguards on the left, Mm -hmm. and you made the case that you just did or the case that we could make, what would they say is the response? It strikes me, you know, Alan Bloom wrote, uh, of course, The Closing of the American Mind back in 1987. And there he identified the main problem with students in the university campuses 
as relativism. Right. I don't know if he was right then or now, right. but it's not the case. Yeah. I would say now, I would say it's actually the opposite. I would say there's a kind of hypermoralism which informs this illiberal attitude. But you know, because I'm not on the campuses like you are. So what's going on here? No, that's right. Right. Bloom is, I presume he's a kind of a conservative in some sense. I read parts of the book. He was observing cultural trends. I mean, he criticizes rock music. He criticizes all sorts of things. It's a very broad brush criticism of university culture. But yes, he's talking about the lack of standards, the relativism. He's complaining about that. That is not our problem now. I need to reread that book and see whether the relativism of the time wiped out all connection to older structures and constraints and left us so open that this new, intense, woke morality came flooding in in 2014 to 2016 with a religious fervor. There are a lot of people who are now writing about how this new campus morality is a religion. John McWhorter has a number of essays on this. Glenn Lowry has written on this. Andrew Sullivan. There's a lot of great writing showing, because my goodness, are there blasphemy laws? There are so many words. So much of it is about words. It's not even the ideas. You can express certain ideas if you do it very, very carefully. But a lot of the trials, a lot of the outrage, a lot of the protests are over a single word in an email, more so than a live speech, because it needs to be sent around by email or other social media. So yes, things are changing. We have too much... um, this angry self-righteous morality. Basically, it is fundamentalism, but it's kind of a new religion that is unconstrained by the wisdom of an ancient religion. And it's the idea that we know better than you do, and we don't want to expose you to these ideas, either for you as an individual or for the society at large, because if you actually buy into these ideas, then the whole thing comes crumbling down. Yes, that's one way to put it. We can be a little bit more specific. It rarely happens that a student says, we must ban this speaker or shut this down because I will be damaged. They rarely say that, but they usually say it's because she will be damaged or they will be damaged. So it's a self-righteous, we call it vindictive protectiveness in our original Atlantic article. It's a kind of moral posturing. The fundamental driver of this, I believe, is the new prestige economy created by social media. That is, in any community, you should look, what does it do to make you rise? What does it take for you to get respect? And so, you know, here I am in New York City at a business school, and we have a lot to do with Wall Street. And in the Wall Street social economy, that you know, they track net worth and how much you made last year and bonus. And that leads to certain toxic behaviors. In junior high school or high school communities, they might track how beautiful you are for girls or how good an athlete you are for boys. And that would lead to other kinds of social pathology. Well, you know, woke culture is about how quick you are to call out racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, or Islamophobia. And so students are falling all over themselves. Who can find some evidence first? And evidence doesn't mean real evidence. It just means, can you plausibly take something that somebody said or wore or ate and construe it as racist, sexist, homophobic, et cetera? And that's what makes it so difficult because we all feel like we're walking on eggshells. It doesn't matter what your intentions are. It doesn't matter how far you are on the left or the right. If someone hears you say something that they can somehow link to so it said, we all have a phobophobia. We all live in constant fear of being called something ophobic. John, we do a lot of work with journalists and also, frankly, with people who want to make a policy contribution over time to the country, especially down here in Washington. And I think a lot of people come in with an interest in the long view that is earnest, that is noble, that is good and healthy. 
And yet, as you stick around at it for a while, something happens. You realize you got to get social media numbers up compared to the journalist beside you, or the Post famously uses Bandito to track every you know comment and engage that a reader has with a piece. What do you see as being norms that are actually helpful on social media if you're a journalist with a rising career today? Okay, any journalist listening to me now, please Google Amanda Ripley complicating the narratives. Do you guys know this? Have you read this? No, I have not. This is like one of the best things I've read in the last couple of years. And so Amanda Ripley, she's writing for the Solutions Journalism Network. There's a short version of it in The Guardian, but the longer version is just amazing. She goes deep into the social psychology of conflict and what it does to our minds. I'll just read you a couple of amazing quotes. She talks about how we have intractable conflicts. We get into a charged state. This is the us versus them that we've been talking about. She says, it's impossible to feel curious, for example, while also feeling threatened. In this hypervigilant state, we feel an involuntary need to defend our side and attack the other. The anxiety renders us immune to new information. And then she goes into research showing how people are really bad at doing nuance and at listening to the other side. But if you make the story more complicated, if you hint early on that the story is more complicated, somehow that just enables people to think in a more complex way. So it's full of very good ideas. And it really is aimed at journalists because she's one of these journalists, as so many are, that have high professional standards, but yet they see the field embarrassing itself. So I wish all journalists would read Amanda Ripley's article, Complicating the Narratives. Let me change that. I wish all Americans would read it. It's really full of advice for all of us in how to think, how to talk, and how to process information. That's great. Let me just, in conclusion, ask you just about your own journey. I know that you said you stepped out of a progressive moral matrix, which you were in in high school, and is now a committed centrist. That journey, the people that were most influential to you, the books that were most influential, how did you end up where you are, and who were the people that shaped you? I was like a total stereotype. Jewish kid raised in Scarsdale, New York, which is you know a fairly heavily Jewish suburb of New York City. I had a bar mitzvah, but a year after my bar mitzvah, I started calling myself an atheist and a scientist. I'm exactly the sort of person that should have been really passionate about the new atheists. So when Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins were writing their books against religion, I'm exactly the sort of person that would have embraced that. But what happened to me is that I began studying cultural psychology. I picked the psychology of morality as my topic in graduate school. I started reading anthropology under one of my advisors, Alan Fisk, and that blew my mind about how morality varies. And then I got a postdoc at the University of Chicago with Richard Schwader, a fantastic psychological anthropologist, and that blew my mind. He's really the most important figure, the most influential figure on my thinking. While I was working with him, I got a fellowship to go to India and study a traditional sex-segregated religious community and try to make sense of how they saw the world. So it was that trip to India, three months in 1993, when I came back from that, for the first time in my life, I could begin to understand the religious right. I moved to Charlottesville for my first job in 1995. I'd listen to Christian radio sometimes when I was driving around central Virginia. And rather than saying, oh my God, this is terrible, I thought, like, oh, wow, okay, yeah, there's a moral world in which they think kids need to learn self-restraint. And it's the parent's job to help them do that. That actually makes sense. I never thought of that. So that's what really opened my mind to the point where I could see that all of us, all of us are limited in what we can see and that we need to listen to others. We need to seek out our critics. We need to take others' views seriously. And an institution that does that well creates wise people. That's what a university should be. 
and a university that has very little viewpoint diversity, that is openly hostile to religion and conservatism, and that reinforces a kind of a progressive call-out culture, is an institution that cannot find the truth and cannot make people wiser. That's a great story and a helpful one to people. So I just want to thank you for being on with us and tell you how much you shaped my thinking, your writings. You made me a better writer and a better person. And the number of times that I've mentioned your name in conversations is a lot. It was a particular pleasure for me to well, chat you. with thank you. Thank you so much, Pete. I mean, you've been, your writings in the New York Times, the, the way that you make Christian ideas accessible to a secular audience is exactly what we need. I love reading your columns. And I just want to just close with one specific suggestion. We didn't talk a lot about child rearing, but if listeners are concerned about how to raise kids in this overprotective time, I would urge them to go to letgrow.org. It's a group started by Lenore Skenazy, who wrote Free Range Kids. I'm on the board of it. But it has all kinds of suggestions for what you can do with your own kids. And more importantly, because we have to do this institution by institution, it has ideas for how you can go to your school or your neighborhood and say we all need to work together to give our kids back a childhood that will prepare them for adulthood. That's a wonderful place to end on. We will link to several pieces that you just mentioned in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much, John Hyde. Uh, my pleasure, Josh. My pleasure, Pete. If you enjoyed today's conversation, don't forget to subscribe, and we'd appreciate if you'd rate and review the show, which helps get the word out. Thanks for listening.